Hey everyone, Frizz here. Today's interview is with Dr. James Davenport, who is a professor at the University of Washington. He focuses on time domain astronomy, as well as sort of interesting younger stars, and also is a quite an active YouTuber. And so we sort of mix between those different topics. It was a great conversation. James is a lot of fun to talk to, and I think you'll really enjoy it. All right, here's the interview. I think so. All right, let's see what happens. Oh, I should get the chat. Yeah, okay, all right. So it's always, uh, I need someone to collapse the wave function to let us know that we exist. I'm here. James knows he's here, but, I, but do I feel we like really I'm here. exist if somebody doesn't <laughs> observe us? How do, you, how do you feel on that, James? Do we exist if somebody doesn't observe us? The, uh, the tree falling in the woods kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does does, does existence require an observer? You know, let's, let's just start with the greater anthropic theory just as the as the entrance to this conversation. Yeah, if, a, if an astronomer stays on mute on Zoom, was he ever even on the call? Yeah. <laughs> how, how, uh, how much do you hate Zoom? I... I... <laughs> You know, I used to think that I was like, you know, look at this wondrous technology that we've got that I can that I can share with people so that they can just press one button and show up and do an interview. And it's just made, <laughs> you know, I don't have to set them up on Skype. And I even have a sign that I hold up that explains to people how to how to unmute their. Oh, that's their, funny. My wife just bought me just bought me these like I think they're for students. Just bought me these flashcards. So, yeah. you know, so you can there's there's like a where is it? Oh, like the Zoom flashcards. They're like Zoom flashcards. I think they're meant for students, but she was like, maybe these would be useful for you. And I think that's hilarious. Uh, yeah, so there's the, there's the URL. <laughs> oh, my, that's so good. <laughs> I, need, I need that actually every day. So this yeah, pile yeah. of flashcards turned to be very, very useful. So yeah, I yeah. don't know. Do I, do I hate Zoom? Yeah. You know, I guess my biggest, my biggest disappointment is that after a year of this, yeah. After a year of living in my basement and, and having my kids stomp around upstairs, bless mm -hmm, their hearts, mm -hmm. that, that we haven't improved this, you know, like, like we've had a year. Yeah. That's, that's an eon in like yeah. the tech world. Yeah. How are we still use? How is this the best? We I know. I know. Where's the hall? We should be sitting in, in a virtual room, seeing mm -hmm. each other. All of the viewers should be in this virtual room, sitting in one easy chair part of the yeah, conversation a virtual beach like on yeah. virtual hawaii yeah. that would be perfect yeah that would be perfect we, we've we've had these conversations in the real hawaii and so we yes. know what can be achieved <laughs> and we're just not there yet <laughs> hey who are you what do you do uh i am me I, uh my name is jim davenport i'm a research professor at the university of washington and i'm the associate director of the dirac institute i'm wearing the hoodie so we get the the free promo there, Dirac, there you go. Nice. Um, it's the Research Institute, which brings together people who are interested in big data and algorithms um, and the frontiers of time domain science throughout astronomy. And so that's that's one of our big teams at the University of Washington. And so I'm the associate director, which is a big blessing um, to be able to help the people. And that's what a big part of my job is keeping the lights on and keeping the people working, I hope. And and we live in in roughly the same part of the world. I'm just across yeah. the border from you in the seething um, COVID hotspot that is Canada <laughs> right now. Yeah, uh, Cascadia. Yeah, yeah. I live in the Cascadia. Yeah, yeah. We're I'm on. We're, we share a devastating subduction zone. Yes. Um, yeah. I was actually going to ask you if it's like dumping rain on you because it was beautiful yesterday here. Yeah. yeah. So I'm in Edmonds, Washington, which is just north of Seattle. Yeah. I'm uh, on Vancouver. And it is miserable today. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, it. Well, we've got hail, actually, big awful hail clouds <laughs> right now. Okay, you win. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we're just getting um, rain. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a pretty weird thing. We only get it in like March, but then my wife is mm -hmm. from Texas, and so she looks at our hail and just laughs at us. You know, <laughs> come on, that's ridiculous. Like, you know, hail should be the size of your fist. Yeah, well, your golf ball minimum. You know? Yeah, golf ball exactly. If it can't <laughs> if it can't tear your part your car apart, to, yeah. you know, down to the you know, nuts and bolts, and it's really just not hail. Um, cool. So, all right. Um, you now were you were you born and raised in the in the Northwest, or did you? I was. I was. I'm born in Virginia, but okay. uh, spent most of my life in the Northwest. Yeah. So I, I actually went to college here at the University of Washington. Oh, great. Okay. Went to California for a few years. Came back for graduate school. Uh, went up to Bellingham for a few years. So even closer to you, actually. Uh, and then came back. Uh, for a research position that I've managed to uh, wiggle my way into a research professor yeah. position. And I'm just 
clawing my way up, trying to, yeah. trying to build a life, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you, you do a great job, I think of, of balancing between active research. Uh, you know, I just checked your Google scholar list and you've got a ton of papers that you're producing a part of like a couple of month, three a month. I've been, you know, there's a big list there. So, you know, I'm not sure we'll be able to cover all of it, but at the same time, I think you do some of the best coverage of the work that's happening at these professional astronomy meetings for other astronomers and the general public at the same time. So, and parent and, you know, <laughs> person trying to avoid rain all the time. How, how do you, right. uh, how do you keep that all balanced? Um, uh, poorly, I think is the okay. answer, especially yeah. in the last year. Um, so, you know, about four years ago, I started um, doing this video project, doing this vlog. Um, I had been turned on to this idea of vlogging by my brother-in-law, who's a music producer. And, um, and and I just was loving what he was doing and showing his process. And I, and I think one of the things that excites me about astronomy and about art and technology and uh, the theme I, I find that, that, that weaves through all things that interests me, cooking, um, is I love the I love the process of creating things. And so I was really entranced by watching him like sit in his studio and like go from nothing to music and, you know, interview other musicians. And I was like, I love, I love being a fly on this wall. That's really fun. And so it started as just sort of a, a, an idea, like what if I took a camera and went to an astronomy meeting and just showed that process, tried to capture what it's like, because for me, the meetings, even though they take a lot of time and they're exhausting, they're also a source of big inspiration and, and yeah. big sort of idea generation. I, I go to this, we call it the double S meeting, the American Astronomical Society meeting. Uh, I go almost every year because it's part of my practice of like generating ideas and catching up with what's going on in my field and my friends in the field. And and there's those moments, there's these magic moments where you're sitting in the audience and you're writing notes or you're scratching your beard if you have one. Um, and and you have that that light turn on, right? You have that that moment of like creation in your mind where an idea didn't exist and then it did. Um, and, and it's like a wild thing. It's like that adrenaline rush. We're like, Oh my goodness, we could do this thing. Yeah. Or I've never thought of that before. It's that amazing spark. And I wanted to capture that. That was my goal. Bring the camera, film everything, try to document the experience and see if I could capture the moment of like idea creation. Huh. And I think I failed at that because <laughs> it turns out that's impossible to actually watch the light turn on in your head, I think. Right, right. Um, <laughs> you like make, a, make a note of that in the video. Like, this is the exact moment. Yeah. Like, you could just, like, slow-mo in your face as you're suddenly discovering something interesting. It probably looks ridiculous, too. Yeah. Like, I'm, it, yeah. And for me, it's probably like I'm sitting here staring literally at the wall, and then I go, huh. And then I just start working. Like, it's probably very boring to yeah, actually yeah, see. Yeah. Um, but it turned out to actually be a really fun project to to get to document what it's like because because it is a unique experience that I take for granted after having done it for 15 years. Mm -hmm. Yep. Going to these meetings and being around these brilliant people and seeing the excitement, seeing the ideas fly through the air. It's really exciting. Yeah, so. they're exhausting and they're <laughs> wonderful. They're yes, I mean, I've been to probably four or five of them at this point. And you know, my job is is to you know, be the fly on the wall. I don't, no one asks me to participate at all, but that allows me to just check in with people, ask them a bunch of stupid questions, find out what they're what they're working on, and sometimes you know even act like glue between people mm -hmm. because sometimes I'll be like, oh, do you hear about this work that so and so is working on over here? And they're like, no, I did not. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and but that's what it's about, really, is that chance to collaborate in person with people to shorten this process. This. Of, of this back and forth of like, oh, I wonder who's working on this. You look at the researchers, who's working on this, you make these connections, but you can just be at a, at a party and someone, and there's a lot of parties, and someone can just say, oh, you work on this, you work on this, they connect you together and you have a fascinating conversation. It's just this beautiful kind of investment in chaos yes. that, that you just don't get a chance to do. And I think, you know, these kinds of professional meetings for a lot of people who are starting in this field of astronomy or even the sciences in general, they don't get a they don't get a chance. They don't see that part of it until they're a little further on in their career. That their department is willing to spend some money to drag them along mm -hmm. as a postdoc or as a doctor candidate or whatever. And your videos, I hope, give people a, a chance to see just to give them a sneak preview of what that life is going to be like for them as they're getting prepared to to into this career. 
one of the most enriching things about the project has been how many students like junior level undergraduates or introductory grad students who have who have come up to me in the last three years at these meetings and said, I watched your video on 10 tips to prepare for the meeting, or I loved that video where you showed the hack day where you guys worked on projects together. And, and I'm like, yes, I, I am reaching this. I mean, it's not a huge audience. There's not that many astronomers in the world. But we call that like in-reach. There's outreach. Yep. Outreach is, I think, we're doing right now. We're talking about science to the world. Yeah. I think that's an important part of being a scientist. Yeah, none of those astronomers are going to watch this conversation. They're busy. But but the in-reach yeah. of like having something that's speaking to, I mean, I have a, a vibrant group of students that I'm working with and a bunch of collaborators, but that's probably like 50 people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, like it's not that many people that you can affect and that you can mentor and share and support and being able to find a medium that allows me to talk to other scientists, especially the junior ones, especially the ones in other countries or at other universities that don't have access to the resources that we do. We're a huge university. Um, I, that's, a, that's I think, a, a hidden um, treasure that I stumbled into and I, I, that I've really enjoyed. Um, yeah, and, yeah, I, I think I'm, you're doing. You're I miss doing the meetings. Too. Yeah, I think you're doing a fantastic job. Yeah, it's too. I, I do miss the meetings. I after every meeting, I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. that's it. That's the last one. I'm not going to do any more of these. The travel, the, <laughs> you know, the cold afterwards, and then I I mm. come back and I go, oh, you know, the next one sounds. <laughs> oh, it's in Hawaii. Sure, why not? I've always wanted <laughs> one more. Yeah, one more, one more. Um, yeah. so let's talk about your research. So what do you yeah. uh, what do you actually as your day job when you're not teaching and when you're not YouTubing, um, <laughs> what are you researching? Yeah, my number one research pro program for the last 10 years has been studying stars. Um, so I think you put it in the description of the video, time domain astronomy. Uh, and that just means watching how things change over time. In astronomy, typically this means watching the brightness of things change. So we've got telescopes in space that are staring at stars, or we've got telescopes on the ground that repeatedly take pictures of stars. We're measuring the brightness of those things. So it looks kind of like a, a stock ticker. You're watching the brightness go up and down. It turns out a lot of the, like the algorithms that you would use to study stocks over time or things like this yeah. uh, turn out to be really interesting. And we uh, we borrow from that field uh, pretty liberally. And I think some of it even works its way back into that field, which is kind of cool. Well, I, I'm um, often, I mean, it's a good career training, right? Most quants yes. are just astrophysicists like that, that wanted to have yeah, a stable job yeah they wanted a paycheck yeah <laughs> um and we have a lot of people that take these kinds of big algorithm uh theses and go into data science go into work for big tech companies i think it's a really great connection um so my research is focused on data from like the kepler telescope uh may it rest in peace um right now the test telescope um and also the zwicky transient facility and hopefully someday soon, the LSST survey on the Vera Rubin Observatory. So hopefully we're seeing first light there in the next year and a half, something like that. Yeah, so let's – now, the people who are, who are watching this channel know that I just really won't shut up about the Vera Rubin Observatory <laughs> and the LSST. And I think, you know, maybe it's coming from my computer science mindset, the idea of digesting just enormous databases and looking mm -hmm. for numbers that are different – is feels like a very productive way to do some really interesting astronomy. So can we just talk a bit about what sort of what will Vera Rubin accomplish in this field? What does this really bring to the table? How is this going to change things? So like as it's like advertised, uh, the Vera Rubin Observatory during the LSST project, it'll last 10 years and it'll do a, a map of the sky. It'll take a mosaic picture of the sky roughly every three days. So every night it'll take about one third of the sky and it'll snap pictures. Um, the field of view is uh, like 100 square degrees or something like that. So, so it's a big mosaic of the sky and it just takes a big still picture of the sky every night and it stitches those together. And that's, um, that's kind of a classical astronomy thing to do. Take a lot of pictures of the sky, stitch them together. Where the magic happens is both doing that over 10 years and with a eight meter telescope. So it's yeah. a humongous telescope. You're seeing really faint objects. So it's a massive survey. Like same but, size telescope as each of the very large telescopes as the Gemini Observatory. Like these are monster telescopes. This is a monstrous piece of glass that was, uh, that was made in Arizona. It now it lives in Chile. It's up on the mountain. It's been, I think, mounted into its mirror cell. I think it is like put where it is going to live, I think forever. Um, I hope it doesn't go anywhere else. Um, it's a monstrous piece of glass, and that means it's going to see incredibly faint things. 
So that's exciting. So you've got an incredibly faint survey over 10 years. And then the magic comes in the computers, as you said. It's it's the software, it's the algorithms. So one of my one of my mentors said that like algorithms are the new observatory because the ability to look for subtle changes or interesting patterns or interesting connections between things, that is the power um, that we have now that we didn't have 50 years ago. Um, and and so the the trick and i hope where my work is it's straddling the line of classical astronomy trying to extract as much understanding as you can from a precious few photons of light or the little hints of what's going on that nature's giving you with this wealth of data where you've got the, we call these light curves where you've got light curves with thousands of data points over 10 years how do we infer what's going on in the stars and how they're changing and what that means for life and the evolution of stars um, from a billion of these things um yeah. you know there there's the first pass things like all right things are bright things are blue things are there's the first pass survey and then you get into the nitty-gritty where you have a billion examples of something and you're looking for the one outlier or you're looking for um the weird trend that nobody expected um and that's where i hope my work is going and that's where i hope i think the field is going i mean it really is the difference between looking at a picture and and looking at a video seeing one mm -hmm. frame. I mean, right now, there are surveys that have been done that go to the depth that Vera Rubin will be able to to capture. Yeah. But it was like one picture taken over the laboriously over the course of many months, and not even to the same level of depth. When I think about, say, pan stars or, mm -hmm. or um, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, I mean, they're still oh, not yeah. as comprehensive as Vera Rubin, Rubin is, is going to go a thousand times fainter than any of those, and which is amazing. video, and then at the same and time take that picture right. every three nights. So that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think the single image that the single image that Vera Rubin Observatory will take is as deep as if you co-added or you combined all the images for a single field of view from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. I think that's roughly about the same. So that's what you get from a huge piece of glass is you get to see really faint. Yeah. Now there is like a funny problem here, which is when you're the roughly the biggest survey in town there i mean there's some, a few bigger telescopes but you're roughly the biggest telescope around and you discover something really interesting and faint nobody else can observe it <laughs> it's like there's actually a problem here and that um we don't we don't have a 30 meter telescope sitting by waiting to follow up these other things and so i'm hoping i think a lot of us are hopeful that not only will the lsst project be this huge discoverer of science and this huge um, opportunity for people at all universities around the world to discover things. But it also will motivate that next generation of telescope, those those space telescopes that we can't afford or we won't build right now, those massive March 30, monsters. 30 or October 31st. <laughs> James Webb is going to fly. It's going to fly. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Fingers and toes crossed. All of it. Yes. Yeah. But right. There's there's a funny thing when you have something that's a thousand times fainter than your best telescope can reasonably observe. Mm -hmm. How, how are we going to learn more about these things? So that, you know, the work never ends. That mm -hmm. it's, we, we always have to be looking, even we're, we're getting ready for first light with the LSST and the Vera Rubin Observatory, we have to be thinking about what's the next thing we're going to build because these things take 30 years to build sometimes. So, so that's interesting to me that, that, that Vera Rubin is going to be, for example, finding, let's say, Planet Nine. <laughs> And yeah, it's going right. to be like, you know, here you go. Here's a nice time <laughs> set right. of, of images of an object, which is clearly large and, and in the outer solar system moving in exactly the right orbit. And go ahead, astronomers, uh, you know, it's <laughs> up to you now. And they, they're like, we can't see it. Like there's right. like, like maybe we can get some Hubble time for a year and try right. to observe this thing. But you can guarantee that, yeah, somebody, if they find it, somebody will point Webb at it if they can. Of course, of course. Um, Webb, right? Like, you know, you'll, Webb, go, you'll Hubble, go after it as sure. much as you can. But uh, and it's unfair to say that nobody can follow up things that uh, LSST and Rubin can see. It's just that it becomes extremely expensive. Um, right. You have to but, sit on it for hours with like Keck or one of the biggest telescopes in the world. Yeah. So there, there's a handful of things, but you have to be super certain, right? You can't do, you know, we have these telescopes that are like three or four meters, which when you stand next to them are like terrifyingly large, but then you think about, well, this is still a hundred times smaller than the other telescopes right. I'm talking about. Um, but these telescopes, we have a lot of them. And so you can get as a student or as a junior faculty member, you can get a lot of time on them. So for the bright things, for the things that like test discovers or uh, the ZTF survey discovers, 
for those things, we can get a night or two to just go and hunt and go and go chase them. We'll be able to chase a very precious few things with mm -hmm. LSST, but we'll have to be very certain that they're super duper interesting. And so this is, again, where the algorithms come in. They're going to say, okay, this was cool, but was it a one in a million object that's worth going after and spending an entire night of keck time on? Maybe. And so you have to be really sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, you talked about that next class of telescopes coming. You've got the, the Magellan, the giant Magellan telescope. You've got potentially the 30 meter telescope, wherever it ends up being. You've got the extremely large telescope that's coming in 2026. You've got James Webb. You've got, but, but that's kind of it. And then, and, you know, Hubble still is going to work hard to keep up. But but I had heard of the overwhelmingly large, like the the OL was it yeah OLT, the overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly large telescope, large telescope. yeah, yeah. hundred hundred <laughs> meters, um, but which they canceled it because the budget was going to cost one billion dollars, yeah. and they said that's too much money. We can't yeah. we can't spend that much money on a on a telescope. Although that's I think that's um, extremely large telescope is going to be a billion one point. 1.1 billion euros. So it's it's and, roughly and expensive. James Webb has cost a lot. Yeah. Whatever it is. Yeah, all of it. Just all the money and whatever you had to yeah. spare. So yeah. I mean th that idea, I mean like it's going to be dumping petabytes of yeah. data. Like if you are a Hadoop programmer and mm -hmm. you know have a lot of uh, Amazon resources available to you, you can uh, just like go crazy. Processing. I think that's right. That nobody I, can I think, ever follow up, which is yeah. <laughs> which well, I think but great. people can always go check your work, right? Because the data will be there. You can always go back and check the work. Yeah, you can always. I think that's that's where the big opportunity is. Uh, I mean, we talk a lot about democratizing science, which I think is kind of an intriguing but loaded term. Um, one of the great opportunities with this survey is that the data is immediately public. To, with some asterisks around like where we send the data internationally and whatever. But roughly speaking, the data is immediately public to everyone, especially everyone in the US. Yeah. Um, because the US tax funder tax dollars paid for a large chunk of the telescope. And that's that's also a revolutionary thing. The data will come out within a few minutes. There will be alerts. Uh, so if there's a big supernova or an object that's changed or moved, they will they the software will trigger an alert and publish that within 60 seconds. So if you are looking for a very rare class of thing that goes bump in the night, you have a within 60 seconds you'll have a trigger and you can point your other telescope at it, space telescope at it, whatever, um, and you can go after it. So those are really special things and those are open to everyone and I think that's really unique. So there's a lot of opportunity. If you're at a smaller school, if you're an amateur, if you're just an enthusiast who astronomers are like myself are learning a lot of computer science or learning yeah. to program. Um, I am also a terrible programmer. If you were to compare me to like a software engineer, like no, nobody's coming knocking at my door to write the next set of like Netflix algorithms or something um, because I'm a scientist. That's not, you know, that's not my specialty. And so we have to balance this, this need for competency and fluency of being able to speak computer languages, and also to be able to be scientists. So I think there's a partnership there. Yeah. Not only do we need people with access to Amazon's web services, we also need software engineers to come and work with us to help us develop tools, to help us not reinvent the wheel. There are people who are learning to classify cats versus apples, and we need some of that technology and don't need to reinvent it ourselves. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that you know, if there was some very motivated uh, computer science people who knew uh, quite a bit about astronomy, they could start digging through the Vera Rubin data and pull together some mind-bending discoveries mm -hmm. that could then be channeled up, you know, into the hands of astronomers who could do some follow-up observations. What are some hints that the universe is doing that we're not, like, when we're not looking, that you are hoping will be captured by this sort of whole field of time domain astronomy? Hints, uh, that's a good question. That's an interesting question. Things that I hope we will discover. Um, I'm really hopeful we're gonna discover, well, I'm, I'm internally interested in what the sun looked like as a young star and what the sun looks like as an older star. You only get this one point in time. And there are a lot of hints um, we get from things like LSST uh, and also things like TESS, uh, these sorts of very precise surveys of stars. Um, with LSST and with Rubin, I really wanna know what the what the youngest stars look like and what and and what the say the rates of flares are and mm -hmm. things that like might be like really disastrous for early life we have hints of it from um 
uh, like from tests that these young stars flare a ton. Uh, and that's very bad if you are a micro, uh, microorganism on the surface of a planet and giant irradiating flares are blasting you constantly, like on things like Proxima Centauri and nearby stars, nearby M dwarfs and things like that. So, you know, th being able to study a billion of these objects, we're going to we're going to have a good census of what they're like when they're very young. And, and um, would a would a flaring star brighten up in a over a time period that would be well caught by Vera Rubin? Maybe. Yeah. Um, the 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 nice thing about things like tests is they because they're looking for exoplanet transits, they just have sort of an unblinking eye. They're staring for days and days and days. And so the flares last hours, 10 hours at like most usually. Um, with Vera Rubin, you're going to get a snapshot. You're going to get like a 30 second picture. Um, and then you're not going to come back for another day or two or three. So you're going to get these outlier points that are like super bright. Um, but you'll get a hundred of them or a thousand of them in a single wide field snapshot. There'll be a thousand stars that are undergoing this flare behavior and you'll come back a few nights later and they'll be back down to their baseline. This has the intriguing result of like the faintest stars. And these M dwarfs, which flare a lot, are super faint. Um, will be even fainter than Rubin can see at some point. You know, if they're, if they're on the other side of the galaxy, even Vera Rubin Observatory can't see them, unless they're flaring, unless they're popping off this flare that brightens them by a factor of a thousand, and then all of a sudden they pop into view, and they, we call this a transient, something that pops into view for one picture or for a few days, in the in the worst case scenario, and then they're gone. And so they're they're like these little these little flashes of light that you'll see. And hopefully, if we observe the sky long enough, you'll see them again, that they'll come back. Um, but we call this a, sort of the transient fog of this like hmm. foreground of M dwarfs that are just like blinking at you, um, that are very faint stars on the other side of the galaxy, blinking into view every now and then. And so do you think it's possible that we actually have a bad estimate for the number of M dwarfs that are out there? I mean, just based on, because they're so dim, right? You're just doing a local survey of, of what you can see nearby. But yeah, it's it's true. The furthest M dwarf we've ever seen is like uh, a few tens of thousands of light years away at most. Um, and it, is, that, is that right? Like it's not that far. Right. Um, like ten thousand light years or something. It's like just really not very far. Um, and that'll go out of you know a factor of a few with LSST. But the galaxy is much larger than that. Um, so yeah, it's possible. I gosh, I really hope not. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about M dwarfs is they're faint, but they're super numerous. They make up like 70% of the stars in the galaxy. And so, you know, we hope that the slice of the galaxy that we can see near us is like the rest of the galaxy. We hope we're not in too special of a place. The universe is very troubling if we find out that we're in a special place. Uh, this is like the anthropic principle. You, you hope that uh, our little island of the universe is not, uh, is not unusual compared to the rest of it. Yeah. Or else that, that makes everything else hard. Yeah, it's, I, I still like thinking about the discoveries that could be made in the solar system in terms of asteroids, comets, mm -hmm. planet nine, hopefully, even things that may be interesting things that objects are doing, we might see comets flaring up, we might see, you know, mm -hmm. the, the possibility to see other solar systems, as you say, here in the Milky Way stars, um, interesting flares on stars, supernovae, things like that, and then the ability even to see right out to the as deep as you can go into the observable universe, the extra galactic universe, looking at mm -hmm. um, supernova happening in other galaxies, and who knows um, what's out there. And I think that's the thing that I'm most excited about is every time you get one of these new capable telescopes that you know enters a new range, you get the 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 complete unknown. They're like yeah. that surprising fast radio bursts, dark energy. Yeah. You know. the 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 Boyajian stars, right? Yeah, the, the things yeah. that are just truly unexpected. Even even if the explanations turn out to be dust, quote unquote, boring. Even if it's just even if it's just rocks and dust yeah. out there, think things going bump and things moving in ways that you don't expect or changing in ways that are just truly unexpected. As you said, every time we have a new data set and a new kind of telescope and a new kind of survey in the optical and in the infrared and in the ultraviolet, whatever it is, any any new frontier we push, we discover things that are just totally unexpected. And they might seem boring now in reflection, but they were mind blowing when they were discovered. Yeah, it um, was. Um, I was talking to Pluto killer Mike Brown about <laughs> his yeah. discoveries of all of those objects in the uh, in the Kuiper Belt, all of these dwarf planets and stuff. And he's like, the very large telescope came out, and we 
we were able to see that much farther. We scanned mm -hmm. the entire plane of the ecliptic. We found all these objects, and that's it. We can't find anything else until the next generation telescope comes along, gives new capabilities, and we get to go to the to the next level. And and those two really go hand in hand in lockstep. I want to shift gears now and sure. um, talk about. I think you know this is not your main job, but it's definitely a hobby. Is that you are you're definitely involved in the thinking about the search for extraterrestrials, the possibility of techno signatures, the puzzle of the Fermi paradox. Tell you know, let's talk about like some of your recent work in in that field. What's what's like yeah. the most recent paper that you've been involved in? Um, well, the thing the thing that I've been thinking a lot about for the last couple of years is you know the two. What is that? The two local expertise we have at, at the University of Washington, we have, I would say, arguably the best astrobiology institute in the world. We have this great team of interdisciplinary people thinking about other worlds and atmospheres and what Earth would be like around a young sun. And it's it's so exciting to, hear, to see their predictions about what James Webb will, will, will discover. And then we have this team that I work with here in the Dirac group uh, thinking about big data thinking about huge surveys, thinking about what, what can we extract from our technology and from our and from these databases to discover the very rare comets and the very rare stars. Um, and that connection, that connection between astrobiology and these big technologically sophisticated surveys is what's really drawing me into this search for what we call techno signatures. So the search for things for extraterrestrial intelligence or, or for the indications that there is technology out there changing things. So it doesn't have to be flying saucers. It is right. This could be, this could be patterns in our data that are just unphysical or or unexplainable from natural phenomena. And so, what so, are some examples of of techno signatures yeah. that have been proposed so far? Yeah, there's there's a huge wealth because this, even though this seems like the new frontier of science, this has been studied uh, usually mostly radio telescopes for like sixty plus years. So there's actually a lot of thinking that's gone into this, which is great. So we're not having to invent this entire field. Uh, instead, we're just trying to adapt what's been done on the radio to these visible light surveys. So these are things like, well, um, the <laughs> I'm sure you and your channel have talked about this ad nauseum, but the thing like the Oumuamua, right? Things that are moving in perhaps unnatural directions. LSST will be the perfect platform to search for this because it will discover thousands of comets uh, and you'll be able to trace them over time. And if they make a 90 degree turn, <laughs> That would be a pretty big indication yeah. that something is unusual going on. Yeah, boom. Um, Take that, UFO right. hunters. Like, Right, there you go. Just go to the survey and wait. Um, yeah. Just wait there for one object. A... That's, I, you know, I'm sorry. Like, I just want yeah, to stop yeah, for yeah. one second. I never even thought about that, but you're exactly right, that you take this incredibly powerful telescope that is scanning the sky, and when the alien mothership stops, <laughs> right. then that is like an asteroid or a comet cannot just stop in space in that way. But of course, right. now, the now it's, it's a tricky it's a tricky regime, right? Because comets have these tails, they have these jets, yeah. and so they push them in unnatural, seemingly unnatural directions. They do get these sort of non-Newtonian or non-Keplerian motions, where they're not just orbiting the sun. They will take little jogs because they do have little jets pushing them. So, right, right we need to work with the experts who study comets and also the people who study these databases to yeah. extract these objects. But, but I think that that's a slam dunk project right there. Yeah, but to watch to. that, to watch this little little blip move across mm -hmm. the field of view night after night, go into orbit around Jupiter, like, boom, you're done. Right. It, it, it would be it would be a complete obvious signal. Yeah. yeah. There's a whole other class of really cool things out there um, that we can predict shouldn't. How do I say this? We can predict they shouldn't exist. Right. So things disappearing is a great example. If you've got stars that are just doing nothing and then just drop out of existence, just disappear from view, yeah. uh, this the would be a big indication complete. that something is, yeah, that, like right, that they've, they've closed the dome on the Dyson sphere, they've blocked out all the light. Now the thing should start radiating in the infrared at some point because that heat's gotta go from the star has to go somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but from, from our standpoint, it should basically just disappear. Um, so that's a class of objects that uh, should be very easy to write algorithms to search for and very unlikely to exist. Um, and then uh, a whole project that I've been working on in the last uh, month or so is what's called the SETI ellipsoid. So it's like a game of Marco Polo, if you ever played that in the swimming pool as a kid, um, only we don't know what to look for or where we're looking. Um, the idea is that if a triggering or, or a signal kind of event, like a supernova goes off and, and you observe it, then you would see that and you would, you would yell Marco, or I guess you would yell Polo, I guess. I don't know. I have to think about I don't this. Know how the the, the analogy is a little we fuzzy here. We've but... never played it in Canada, so I have no idea how this game is Okay, played. perfect. Yeah. Even better. Yeah. 
Yeah, for, those analogies totally broken. Yeah, that was great uh, though because you know I, as the alien civilization, have no clue what you're getting right. on about here. Right. <laughs> it's the perfect analogy yeah, then. Yeah, it really is. Um, the the idea being that you would see this event that would be noticeable everywhere in the galaxy, like a supernova or like some big novae, and it would go off, and then you would see it. So the 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 light from that event would pass by you. And you would say, oh, look, I've, my LSST has seen this Nova go off. And I'm now going to flash my signal, my signal lamp, and let everybody else know that I've seen this. Mm -hmm. And so if you draw that picture of like the light rays coming to the alien star and then coming to us, then that forms an ellipse in the sky where you can say, based on that supernova we saw, this star over here would have seen it at, you know, the speed of light is constant everywhere. Again, again, hopefully the laws of the universe are the same everywhere. That would be And so you'd be able to figure out that, okay, that star over there is 10 light years away from us. And it's roughly the same distance from that supernova that we are. And so if they saw it, and then they blinked out their signal lamp saying, we saw it, we're over here, hmm. then that distance would be 10 years. That, that timing offset would be 10 years. Right. Um, and so you can draw this like ellipse in the sky that is constantly growing. Um, and you can use your surveys to be scanning the sky and be like, hey, we saw, we saw a star flare or something over here. And that happens to fall on this weird ellipse based on this supernova we saw where they, if they had seen it, maybe that's, their, maybe that's them signaling us. Maybe that's them shout, seeing the Marco and shouting the polo. Right. And and so your thought is with a telescope like Vera Rubin, in theory, you can you can look for these events that are that are linking up over the right periods of time. You exactly. We don't we don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know if you know if a similar civilization has the capability of producing a pretend right. supernova. It might just be a small little flash of light. But if it's timed at just the right moment, yeah. um, that would have some meaning encoded that we would be able to say, look, it, that that star probably shouldn't have flared. Yeah. Or if it did, it's very unlikely it would have flared at this very moment that corresponds to when they should have seen that supernova. Have you thought about what kinds of energies would be involved to actually send out a, a signal that would be detectable in a spherical pattern? I mean, yeah, it... it's it, it's a ton of energy. Right? Okay. Outshining your parent star turns out to be really hard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you can do it. Um, we could do it with a laser, but only over a very narrow wa wa wavelength range. Producing light that's brighter than the, your parent star is really hard. So it turns out Energy-wise, blocking light is a little easier. You can throw up a giant star shade or a big, hmm. um, or a big piece of mylar and block out a lot more light than you can. Oh, that's in really interesting. I've never even thought about that. That's exactly right. That that shining a light is way tougher than just blocking some light. I mean, like it's not trivial to block a light, right? To yeah. trying to create a Jupiter-sized uh, mylar blanket to float in outer space right. is still like a catastrophically expensive project. <laughs> of course. But it's still right. a whole lot easier than producing a laser that produces optical light that's yeah. a thousand times uh, brighter than the I'm sun. I'm sort of imagining those like vertical blinds and you would see the you would see the supernova and then you would just, you know, someone would go out and turn the little yeah. thing and <laughs> blink, blink, yeah, blink, exactly. Yeah, it's the, like the signal blinds. shutters, right? Yeah, on exactly. Except you'd have to be able to yeah. do it in all directions. You've pretty much built a Dyson sphere. Like, isn't that just an yeah, elaborate right. excuse for building a Dyson sphere? <laughs> like, we need to be right. able to, you know, the only way we're going to do that is to have a series of space stations in a complete sphere around the, the star. Okay. Or a, a swarm of objects or something, right? So, so that is, I mean, that or even just, like, let's assume that one of our alien neighbors knows that we're here. They decide mm -hmm. they're going to shoot a laser directly at us to, mm -hmm. to tell us, like, we see you. Hey dummies, we just saw the supernova. Right? You know, are you paying any attention to us yet? Right. Um, but let's say that, that they don't necessarily aren't. They're not broadcasting their existence. We are going to snoop on them. What mm -hmm. What sort of ways do we have that are that are possible? Well, this is where like radio astronomy really has, I think, been the pioneer. Is that the idea that the best signals that you can look for um, are ones that are sort of inevitable. So things like waste heat, right? Like thermodynamics says that you can't just like trap all the energy from a star your, your stuff is your 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 dyson sphere is going to get hot and so it's going to radiate in the infrared and so even if you're trapping all that energy from the from the parent star we should be able to see you in the infrared you can't you can't hide at all wavelengths mm -hmm. um so that's a good signal because it seems inevitable if you do build this megastructure even if you're not trying to be seen 
it should be detectable. Um, another good example is like laser pulses. If you're using lasers to communicate with your probes or with your other space stations, um, seeing little flashes of laser light, um, we don't see stars flash like that in like nanosecond bursts. And so that's, um, that's a good example. Those signals also uh, encode a lot of our thinking about ourselves. We can only kind of imagine um, the sorts of technology that we have. And so it, it's very difficult to predict, like, what would a civilization that is far yeah. greater in extent and power than we are, um, what would be the inevitable signal that they would produce? Um, so let's sort of shift a little bit. You know, I've talked to the, the astronomers I talked to who are sort of working in this field, um, you, Kipping, um, and others, uh, Jason Wright, you know, it feels like the more you think about this, the more the Fermi paradox is uh, <laughs> a a really disturbing idea. It's really hard because, like, the more you start to think about just about it's not about the search; it's about the ability for alien robot factories to send spacecraft to every star system and produce more of them. Um, and, and when you sort of look at it from that scale, or even their ability to build, you know, go to every star and turn them all into Dyson spheres, what feel like inevitable, right, the inevitable outcome of continuous growth of, of the pursuit of energy, the evidence should be just plainly obvious that we are not alone in the universe, that there, like, there's some super weird reason that our planet hasn't been turned into a Dyson sphere yet, but the robots are on their way. How do you I mean, square the, that circle in your mind? The the first thing that gives me some comfort in this space is that like space travel is still catastrophically hard. And so it, we can definitely imagine that the civilizations that might be out there, yeah, would be able to build self-replicating Dyson sphere building robots and just send them out. And then, you know, they just wait a hundred thousand years and they've conquered yeah. or they've you spread watch, themselves. Yeah, you just watch I mean, like, galaxy after galaxy shift into the infrared. Right. Um, but that, I mean, the number of assumptions there is just so huge. Like we, we have no idea what the success rate of that thing, of that kind of enterprise is. Well, it just takes one. Um, yeah, it only takes one. That's right. But it's still increasingly hard the further out you go. So, um, so maybe, um, I, I'm also just really comforted by the fact that we've barely begun to search mm -hmm. and like, yeah. Okay. So obviously there are not, um, alien spacecraft, like independence day, just sitting on top of us waiting to take us like, you know, there's the obvious signal that we haven't detected, but in terms of the amounts of signals that even we've considered, we, even we thought of, we've barely scratched the surface, right? We, we have for the most part done targeted radio studies of a thousand or so nearby stars out of the hundred and hundred plus billion stars that are in this side of the galaxy. We, we've barely studied the, the sky. We've barely scratched the surface of the kinds of signals we can even imagine, let alone the ones that people will come up with. Um, you know, I think Jill Tarter said that uh, it's like we've searched for, for life in the ocean. Mm -hmm. We're trying to find uh, whales in the ocean. We've only searched one cup full of water so far. Like we've searched this much of the ocean and we sure. didn't discover whales. So <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, like, you know, I, like I know this is an interview, but I'm going to turn this briefly into a debate, um, which is, I, you know, I just, I just don't find that argument compelling because, I mean, she's Jill Tarter, and you know, I think she's the greatest. So I'll have this conversation <laughs> right. with you and not with her. Her, I will just, you know, <laughs> thank her profusely for all of her work. But, um, but, uh, but just this idea that that it feels inevitable that we will attempt to send robotic spacecraft to other star systems and it feels like we will attempt to make those robot robots build other robots and go to other robotic star systems and 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 alien civilizations will go like what's with all these robots that have the word nasa printed on them they're that are all over the place they just keep turning our buildings into robot factories what's this about <laughs> nasa um viger so and 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 so it feels to me like that is the inevitable outcome. Like that's that's what we're going to do. Like if nobody stops us, if nobody actually comes and breaks our our robotic fingers, we're going to fill the universe with self-replicating robot pro probes. I mean, and maybe, maybe, like, sure, if, maybe. If if we find like an economic reason to do it, right? Like th this is the other like anthropic piece of it is like 
there's a lot of things we haven't done as a civilization on our own planet that we could do that sure. are that are technologically very possible. Well, and, and so we that's the that's the issue, right? Like like it doesn't feel unreasonable to me that we will eventually be able to build a self-replicating robot factory for a few million dollars and and it'll off off it goes. That and, and as long as you're patient, you just wait for stars to fly close to the solar system. You know, wait seventy thousand years, and you can just hop from here to Gliese five eighty two or whatever. That right. you know, the the trip time is actually shorter than you think. So, anyway, it just kind of feels to me like you end up with two possibilities: like we're either alone, or it's impossible that we will not be able to do that, no matter how hard we try, because every civilization that's come before us has failed. And I, I mean. I'm I'm a little bit comforted by the latter answer. I I hope the former is not true. That like it does seem like there's a staggering number of stars and that there are even more planets and that life should be out there. So the idea that we're alone, I mean, is definitely one solution. Like it it's not ruled out at all by what we know about the frequency of planets and the occurrence of life because we know precious little about how often life is produced on other planets. Yeah. But um it is possible that we are the only the only life or at least the only sentient life in the galaxy. Um, but it, we may be teeming with life and yet space flight and self-replicating robots that get to Proxima Centauri and get to Wolf 359 and all the other places, it, it just may, that may be impossible. Yeah. The good news about that, the, the part that gives me a little peace there is that there may still be ways to at least, as you said, snoop on them, at least see them. I mean, you hear these statistics like if there is a, uh, I'm going to misquote this, but uh, if there is an airport within like 50 light years, Alma yeah. could hear it. Yeah, 100 you light know, years. Um, yeah, it's, I yeah. mean, right? Like, that's an yeah, amazing. Yeah, square kilometer array can detect an airport, can detect the world's air traffic within about 100 light years. So that's amazing. Okay, there's not, there's probably not any other airplanes within 100 light years. It's not that big of a bubble. Although there are like 200,000 stars that you could possibly look at within 100 light years. But no, uh, no, 100 parts. No, there's a thousand. <laughs> Yeah, a thousand. Yeah, hundred parsecs. There's a couple hundred yeah. thousand yeah. stars. So if you get if you get a factor of three out even further, yeah, then you start to increase your sample. And anyways, the, I, I'm comforted by the fact that maybe space flight is hard, and we're never gonna get the Star Trek future that I grew up wanting to fly between I, the stars. La la la! I'm not listening. <laughs> like maybe, <laughs> you know, that is but impossible. it doesn't mean we're alone, yeah. right? It doesn't mean that like the most profound questions about whether or not we're alone and where we come from and um, and you can ex extrapolate that into even more profound questions about the, what the purpose of life is, perhaps. Yeah. We still, I think, can look for them. This is what excites me about this, is that we don't know. And we're building these surveys. We're building this technology to look for things that we do know is out there. Kilonova and supernova and eclipsing stars and exoplanets. We're building the technology to find these things. And so, and so the calling that I'm feeling uh, at this point in my career is we ought to look. Yeah, I don't know all the possible signals and lighthouses and beacons that might be out there. I, I hope I hope that people like you, I hope people like uh, David Kipping and Jason Wright and um, and Jill Tarter and all the rest keep coming up with these great ideas of ways that we might look because I because why not look? Yeah. What else is the point? Why? Well, I, I mean, f for me, it, it's really about like if we are alone then then life formed in one place in the entire milky way and we wrecked it we screwed it up and right <laughs> that it was you know on our watch here was this great opportunity to seed a universe with life life is better than non-life the the universe is made better with all the diversity of of life that that earth can provide and and the universe said okay humanity you know do your job and we're like you know we're just going to fill the atmosphere with greenhouse gases and and fill our oceans with plastic and run out of usable energy and and then leave nothing for the dolphins or the or the or the uh, you know whatever comes next and right. because we used all the readily usable material. So anyway, I uh, I feel like I mean, look, dinosaurs were here. Dinosaurs were massively complicated, humongous yeah. animals, and they lived for a very long time. And as far as we know, they didn't build any radio. No, they blew it. They blew it. Right, they, they had, had their chance. chance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, right, so, like, it, so it feels to me like... Life may be very common. Yeah. Life may be very common. But, there could be dinosaurs like if we, everywhere. If we did find life on another star system, I'd just be super relieved. I'd just be like, oh, the pressure is off. Like now, <laughs> right? Right? Like now, now it's not our job. 
now somebody else can just be building that galactic civilization or even just making sure that that life exists beyond the moment where our sun bloats up and, and cooks the planet. Um, I mean, what we can say with certainty is that life must be precious. We don't we don't see aliens just walking by. So it's either super hard to get out there. Yeah. And or life is rare. Yeah. yeah. I think that puts a value on uh, on what we're doing. Yeah, I well think said. It puts a yeah. environmental value on what we're doing. And that's important. Yeah. So um, I've got some, uh, you know, I want to get some questions from the audience. If you want to talk about yeah. uh, some of the, these ideas of, of uh, searching for life, if you want to talk about uh, time domain astronomy, if you want to talk about uh, the nastiness of, of Red Dwarfs being a <laughs> astronomy YouTuber, um, any of that, uh, definitely post some questions. I've got a couple here that, that have already come through, so um, I wouldn't mind uh, throwing them, them your way. Um, yeah, are you going to read them to me? Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Um, well, I always hide my window in the wrong place. Okay. Uh, so Arjun asks, will we in the near future be able to detect how long a planet would be habitable? Um, maybe. I think we'll, we'll know that answer. I mean, we're going to have that answer statistically. We're not going to ever watch a single planet for any appreciable amount of its, uh, of its life because, you know, I'm not going to live that long. I won't live 100 million years to watch what happens to the orbit or the, the evolution. So it's going to be a statistics argument. Will we be able to see enough planets around stars with different stages of development? And I think the answer is yes. We've already seen planets around really young stars, hot Jupiters that are really close in, planets around stars like Proxima Sen, which are very active and potentially uh, very inhospitable. So I think so. Yeah, I think the answer will be we'll have a, enough. We have like 4,000 known planets. That's a ton. Yeah. We're going to yeah. see in the next few years that number num number continue to grow rapidly. When we're when you have 100,000 planets, we'll be able to pick and choose and, 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 and be able to map that evolution from young to old, from massive stars to low mass stars. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's again, with the statistics and the algorithms are going to be really helpful. It's, it is interesting that, you know, in the, in the olden days, uh, we, we counted planets on both hands. Um, and now we're into the thousands. We're shortly going to hit into the tens of thousands. Uh, I saw one estimate that puts us in the tens of millions by the mid century that it shifts from, each planet being its own unique snowflake to each, yeah. you know, that you're looking at millions of planets at a time and considering them in a, in a vast mathematical approach. Um, I'm glad I was not in the planet hunting business 10 years ago <laughs> yeah. because it was super competitive. Like I do not want to have to hear about, you know, planet yeah. peg 51 again. I mean, pe people were like guarding their data. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you would write a paper on a single planet. Um, and, you know, that still happens, but it's very rare now. Now we get these catalogs of like, yeah. here's a hundred more, here's a thousand more. I, I can um, remember like the moment when, when I saw a press release for a planet. I was looking through archive and it was like, you know, two new planets discovered at this. I'm like, two? I've seen more. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Eh. Next. Yeah. Next. Yeah. Yeah. Let's 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 move on. I think we can do better. You know, come back when you got like four. Uh, oh. But what's what, what's great, right, is when you start to have huge catalogs where the discovery of a single planet sort of I mean, amazingly, right? It's like going to the moon. When that becomes boring, then you start to start to wonder what's rare, right? And this is where people start discovering the very unique yeah. planets. So, right, we have. A precious handful of planets that have been discovered in very strange orbits or planets around binary stars or really unique configurations that challenge our understanding of formation and evolution of planets. You only get those things uh, when you start having big catalogs. So, you know, I, I predict my prediction for you, Frazier, is you'll still be you'll still be having uh, a lot of press about uh, single objects. Yes. Those those uh, those superlative objects will only appear once we have 100,000 of them. Uh, the yeah. Thing. And that's going to be exciting. I mean, um, people always ask me, like, where would you like to go in the in the universe? Where, where would you like to go in the Milky Way? I'm like, I don't know. Like, nobody's done a good job of surveying yet. I, I'm, I can't yeah. I can't make that choice. Right. I need to I need someone to deliver the goods. Tell me about a world that that has three stars and we know that it has, you know, vast oceans and and a forested moon. Now we're talking. But, uh, you know, um, Gaia has only mapped like two billion stars out of a few hundred billion. Yeah. Right. We've, we've we haven't even mapped one percent. Uh, Bozo asks, ask him what's been ruled out in terms of E.T. It's Bo space Zo. Not Bo, Zo. Yeah, Bo, uh, Well, um, what's ruled out, uh, again, I think it's actually very little. Uh, it, it is the very obvious. Um, we, we know there are not 
Um, we know they're not very large um, Star Destroyers flying right next to us. We do have actual good maps of the sky every night or two. Um, we do map uh, between ZTF and TESS and the surveys that do exist, Assassin, the surveys that do exist, we can rule out big things moving through the solar system. Uh, things like Oumuamua are pretty small. Um, so we can rule out big things. That's good. Um, or maybe that's disappointing. I don't know. That's good. Um, we can definitely rule out uh, a lot of radio signal from a lot of the nearby stars. So the Breakthrough Group, for example, has been doing a really methodical job of surveying a ton of nearby stars with radio telescopes. So there is a lot of like radio signal that we can rule out. Um, and then from the standpoint of like the optical surveys, well, okay, we've only found one Boyajian star-like object, but there is a ton of variability um, sort of flickering and dimming and things of stars that maybe are not as dramatic as Voyage and Star, but there's a lot of stars that have had that kind of behavior that we don't quite understand. And there's a lot about the potential of building Dyson spheres that we have not been able to rule out. Um, the disappearing stars, there's been a few candidates of those. Most of those um, either have had dust or some other explanation. There have been some sort of nova. Um, so we can rule out uh, any of those from the nearby stars. But as soon as LSST uh, starts churning out data, this search will begin again for even fainter things. So I, I feel like the field of play is pretty open. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, but it is like as those powerful new observatories do come online, as you get things like James Webb or Louvoir that are capable of detecting exoplanet atmospheres, that you will start to be able to rule them out and go, nope, you know, yep. nothing there, nothing there, nothing there. And you're looking out as far as you can detect, and it's all just something bland. Yep, um, that's right. Um, and I think that's important, right? Being able to rule things out is important. That's what makes this science, right? It's right. We can, we can go look for things that perplex us, but we have to be able to explain what we see. And yeah. so any candidate we find, we're going to hit it with everything else we have to try to show that it's just boring dust and rule anything else out. And that's, you know, that's part of the work. Uh, well, we're sort of nearing the end of the hour that we set aside to chat. Uh, it's been great. great. But James, if people want to, uh, I guess, what are you working on right now that if people want to sort of follow your latest adventure? Yeah, right now, my, my efforts are split. Right now, I'm working on understanding stars with the test survey. So we're, we're studying flares. We're studying what we call magnetic activity, which the sun produces, but thankfully not much of. So we, we, we have a habitable place, a comfortable place to live. We're studying these very violent, very outbursty stars with tests. So we've got a lot of work going on with flares and star spots and things like that. So I'm, I'm excited about studying those kinds of things uh, with the test survey, which is which is flying right now. Uh, and a lot of the work that I'm developing and grants that I'm writing right now are on technosignature searches with missions like LSST or the ZTF program. That's really cool. Um, so that's that's what I'm hoping to work on. And uh, hopefully I'll be on YouTube as well, sharing some of that science. Yeah. Are those are, are those kinds of grants actually getting picked up these days? Are you finding that that you, this like, is this I want to look challenge. for aliens and people are going, yeah, OK, sure. Have some um, money. It has been difficult, I will say. It has been <laughs> okay. difficult right now. So there has been sort of a moratorium on funding this stuff. Now there is language in the in the grant calls that say we, we're open to it. Yeah. So we're writing, not just me, but myself and others, are writing proposals uh, as feelers. And so I think this proposal I'm working on right now, this is a feeler. It, it may get shot down for not being the most exciting science, but I would love the chance to actually get it reviewed. That's a big goal for me. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think it's great. You can, I mean, definitely you can feel that that sea change that's going on from. I think so. And I think there's been a lot of people like you, David Kip, you know, Kipping, uh, Jason Wright, even you know, especially Avi Loeb, like a lot of researchers who, yeah. and then of course I was say Jill Tarter, Seth Shostak, you know, people who have been, who have who have focused their energy, but but had to be sort of outside of the traditional funding set for the longest time. Now I mean, suddenly, look, I think it's. A great time to be yeah. doing a SETI work, technosignature work as like as as your 10% of your research portfolio. That was what Jason Wright's suggestion was to me. Like do yeah. it as, a, as a, a side part of your work because the byproduct of looking for the extreme or the rare is that you discover really amazing stars or right. The byproduct of looking for aliens, okay, you might not find aliens, but you might get a nature paper or a really prestigious publication because you've discovered something incredibly rare. The byproduct is really good science. It's yeah. not it's not a waste of time. And what is the best place to follow what you're doing? Um, uh, I spend too much time on Twitter. That's mm -hmm. a great place I've to interact that. with me. Yeah. You see? <laughs> yeah. Judging you harshly. Uh, but only just, a person who spends too much time on Twitter would know that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Only somebody who's replying to me in the middle of the night would know yeah. that. 
and, and then my YouTube channel, um, which has been a great place and a great community for me to reach out to people. So it's uh, youtube.com slash James underscore Davenport. I yeah, forget. And I'll exactly. put a link. I'll, you know, put one of the little Cardi Blake bops in front. And so it'll link. But yeah, I'm trying to produce a, a weekly video there. I'll get back to that once the pandemic recedes some. Um, and the goal there is to share what it's like to be a scientist. Yeah. It's about the people and the experience of being, you know, so I do talk about science, um, but I also talk about just the daily life and, and the work and the travel uh, and the grind. Yeah, and I think that's great. And I think that's that's really appreciated by the people who are in the field, who just who wished someone would take the time to explain how you do your job. And yeah. and and I know as well for me being able to sort of get a sense of of what your work, you know, you're like another set of eyes at these conferences that I'm not seeing the stuff that you're seeing, and then I can sort of follow up. So it's uh, you know it's great work. I really enjoy your your YouTube work. So, so thank you so thank much. You. Yeah, man. All right. Well, I hope you can uh, you know continue continue to hold out for the rest of this, uh, this pandemic without, uh, yeah, exactly. Continuing <laughs> with all the papers. And I hope that we'll be able to hang out at an in person in an upcoming, double uh, AS meeting. I'm optimistic. We'll see each other soon. I'm sure. All right, man. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, Pedro. Find the button.